Hey, welcome to the Pharmacy Residency and Money Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Tony Guerra, pharmacist and publisher, bringing you help succeeding in your career, health, and wealth before, during, and after residency. You can sign up for the email list at pharmacyresidencypodcast.com to get your free LOI template or get editing help working one-on-one with me at residency.teachable.com. Before we get started with the show, I just want to talk a little bit more about why I'm so focused on finances as we kind of move forward. And it isn't just that we've gone through a strong period of inflation, and it's just the rate of inflation has gone down. The inflation is still there. It's not going down unless we have some amount of deflation. But as these residency acceptance rates have gone up into the 80s, if you get an interview, right, you still need to get an interview, um, you're going to have a little bit more choice in places that you're gonna wanna go, but you still have to get it. The ones that have the best work-life balance and the best career prospects or best experience are still gonna be the ones with the most applications. So I'm happy to help you through my, you know, the letter of intent course and all of that stuff. But I think the most important thing is that you figure out if this makes sense for you because you know, residency is not something you have to do as a pharmacist. You can go right into community. Uh, in some cases, you can go right into hospital, but very soon uh, we're going to see a crack in the employment, and we're already seeing it to begin with. Now, healthcare is one of those that's not going to be as affected as other areas, but I can tell you that if that does happen, uh, we're going to see a little bit more competition as we kind of move forward. But I wanted to bring Jim Dolly on, who is uh, the uh, owner of the White Coat Investor, uh, and he's just done a phenomenal job. He is a physician, uh, but uh, I've asked you know questions as it relates to pharmacists, and, and really it's not that much different. Uh, if a primary care physician is working and a spouse is at home, uh, it would be the same as two pharmacists working together in terms of income or something like that. So uh, many of our problems are, are very similar. So uh, without further ado, we'll get into talking to Jim Dolly of the White Coat Investor. All right. Welcome to the Pharmacy Residency Podcast. Remember the Pharmacy Podcast Network, uh, Jim Dolly or Dr. Jim Dolly on from the White Coat Investor. Uh, and I just want to first say welcome to the show. It's good <laughs> to be here. <laughs> All right. So I'll get the editing team on that. All right, fun. Okay. Well, uh, the White Coat Investor actually has many, many offerings, uh, podcast, uh, Reddit group, Facebook group. So I wanted to just narrow in on one book. Uh, again, many of you, since you're listening to podcasts, listening to YouTube, uh, love the audio book. Uh, and we're going to go over the White Coat Investor's financial boot camp. So uh, could you tell me a little bit about what made you write the second book? Because you have four books out, if I remember right. You have your original White Coat Investor book, this book, then one on for students and one to protect assets. But I think it's protecting assets from, um, I didn't read it. It's uh, protecting assets from like attorneys and things like that. The average physician gets sued about 7% of the time. Is that something about? Yeah, that? that's basically what that book's about. Okay. That, that book was a niche dive into, okay. <laughs> okay. into a subject that's near and dear to the hearts of many physicians. I don't think <laughs> pharmacists worry about it quite as much, but doctors, a lot of them, absolutely, they're thinking about this all day long, about losing their assets in some lawsuit. And the truth is it almost never happens. 
Okay. It's yeah, extremely I think unlikely. And so that's why I wrote a book basically <laughs> about it and what you can do if you're still worried about it once you actually understand your likelihood <laughs> is that low. But uh, but that's what that book is. It's it's a pretty niche topic, though, asset protection. Okay. The other ones are much more general books, though. The student ones obviously is geared at students and residents um, and also has a big section at the back on just financial literacy. And here's what all these words and terms mean that everybody uses. The first book was just kind of a, you know, inspirational. Here's my story. Here's how I became a millionaire. Here's some things to think about. The second one, the financial boot camp that we're talking about today, grew out of a series of emails we put together for when people subscribe to our to our monthly newsletter. And I thought, well, this would be really easy to write a book. We'll just, you know, <laughs> do a chapter for each email. And it turned out you basically had to rewrite the whole thing. And it was just as much work as the first book. But it's very prescriptive. It's do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. And then you'll have a financial plan and your life will, you know, go well going forward, financially speaking. But- well, prescriptive for... <laughs> For pharmacists, that's our thing. So <laughs> that's going to work just fine. Um, well, what I wanted to do is kind of go through each chapter uh, and kind of give some of that prescriptiveness. Uh, we do like a plan and all of that, but kind of maybe a, a story uh, from one of you, maybe a podcast episode or um, whatever you're willing to share that kind of, uh, you know, maybe kind of brings it home. And uh, you actually set it into missions. Um, is there a reason that you made it into missions that uh, just kind of was a kind of a cool way of putting it like, okay, let's get through this mission and then the next one and the next one. And you have 12 steps uh, within these missions. Well, originally they were going to be chores. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My owner said, you cannot use chores. Chores sucks. No one wants to do chores. <laughs> Give them missions. So it's like you're on, you know, a video game quest that you have to accomplish each level. Now you I have 12, 12 missions instead of 12 chores. All right. So a gamer at heart. All right. And did you ever, <laughs> did you ever do the GME thing? Did you ever put in a couple bucks just to see what happens? Uh, that movie's coming out soon. Uh, Dumb Money, I think it's called. No, I never did. I mean, it, it was kind of obvious from the beginning that that was something to watch, not participate in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's let's start with the not funny. And and the, the physician, actually, there's a physician five houses down from my house who delivered my children. Uh, and something that was really just kind of shocking to me was uh, we worked out at Farrell's together, sometimes a kickboxing gym or a local kickboxing gym. And in meeting him, he was a very serious guy. He works in the NICU. And and then when I met him in person, he was like a really funny guy. Like he was great personality. And it was just kind of just, you know, just diametrically opposite. When we talk about finance and those types of things, step one, disability insurance, that's kind of one of those super serious things. Tell me a little bit about why you would put that as the very first chapter Um and uh, maybe a story about someone that you know benefited from that being the very first chapter who probably said, ah, I don't need it. It'll be fine. No, it's funny you mentioned that because I just had somebody uh, send me an email a few months ago that said, hey, really, thanks a lot for putting that in as the first chapter. I went and did it and now I'm disabled. Awesome. I mean, it happens. Doctors well, that's, get disabled that's not all awesome, the time. But, yeah. I mean, but uh, basically, financially speaking, that advice, you know, saved his life. Um, because now he's got this income. I don't remember how much, what his benefit was, ten dollars or $12,000 a month or whatever, but this is what he's now going to be living on for the next 30 years. And I've met a lot of docs living on their disability insurance uh, payout. 
Um, in fact, we we have somebody writing for us here at the White Coat Investor, uh, you know, a contract writer that does columns, uh, who's a dentist who is getting disability payments every month. He's got a column coming up on it. But I, I've met a lot of docs living on their disability insurance. Uh, kind of one of the more sad ones was a doc that had a benefit of $2,500. It was all just this policy that he'd bought during residency and never kind of made it any bigger. And and I talked to him, what's that like living on $2,500? And he, you know, played it off like it didn't sound so bad, but that'd be a pretty big change to my lifestyle to go from <laughs> what I'm spending now to $2,500. But uh, at $2,500 a month is a whole lot better than nothing. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what you're left with if you get disabled. And, um, and it's a big deal. If you go and spend a decade of your life learning a craft, basically, you know, becoming this hyper specialist in something, you know, whether that's pharmacy or medicine or whatever, that you've now basically taken out a mortgage on your brain and, um, and you need to protect that asset, that ability to now convert time to money at a pretty high rate is valuable and you should protect it. And the only way to do that is disability insurance. No, absolutely. Um, the nice thing about it is, uh, you know, some specialties are cheaper than others. And I imagine pharmacy is a pretty cheap um, profession. Our malpractice insurance insure. is 140 a year. Yeah, exactly. But I'm talking <laughs> even disability insurance, they have gradations, right? Like a, like a, a surgeon is going to have relative and a dentist, they tend to have pretty high. Okay disability insurance premiums and an internist or a pharmacist is going to have relatively low ones. So it's not going to be that expensive. Everybody gets sticker shock when they go and, and uh, price this stuff, but it's not going to be as expensive for you as it would be for somebody else. And if you get disabled, I assure you it's uh, it's a whole lot better than having to try to prove total disability to social security. And I remember that I, I don't remember the number. Do you have the number? What percentage of physicians become disabled each year? It was very high when I I remember it being it, relatively high. I don't know what the percentage is each year, but it's one out of seven at some point during their career. That's incredibly high. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot higher than you would imagine, right? And that, those are people who are disabled for at least three months. Um, oh my gosh. And uh, so it's it's not a small number. Now, that the only people who truly have the data, right, are the disability insurance companies. And oh, they're yeah. Pretty, <laughs> pretty stingy with passing it out. Okay. But uh <laughs> But Fair it's it, it's higher than you think, and I've certainly met plenty of them. Um, now a lot of them aren't permanently disabled. You know, they might only be out for a year or two, and then they're back. But as you can imagine, in our careers, once you've been out for a while, it's pretty hard to come back. And I've heard the military, um, not just the money, but um, I think uh, there was a story uh, about uh, someone that went overseas. Um, served his time, but he felt like his skills uh, just kind of fell apart over those year or two. And he came back and trying to get him back was was a real tough thing. Yeah, that can definitely be challenging if you go to an environment where you're not doing what you what you were doing yeah. previously. Okay. And then anything else about disability? You, you talk about the the brokers um, and kind of like there there's there's usually when you're, you're going out for disability insurance, you, you kind of get this navigator uh, since you, you know, express the interest and they kind of explain everything to you. So you don't have to become an expert on disability. You've got a couple of trusted brokers you recommend or links to the website. 
Yeah, we keep a link of recommended uh, agents on our website. They're all they all get paid a commission if you buy a policy, right? Okay. So they, these are sales <laughs> yeah. salesmen, is what they are. All right, all um, right. But they're also experts in the products, you know. And so you don't want to ask them, should I buy disability insurance? You don't want to ask them, you know, how much insurance should I buy? But when you get to the point where you're like, which policy should I get? Right. They're so the maybe, experts. They're so the maybe ones a little different talking to. Maybe yeah. a little different than going to a surgeon and asking if they need surgery. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit different. There's not okay. quite the, uh, you know, fiduciary duty there that you would hope there was. Okay. All right. So from the excitement of disability to insurance, <laughs> <laughs> step two, does anyone depend on your income? And, and this was, uh, my wife, uh, we have three 12 year old girls. Um, we were, uh, we we're very fortunate that her company paid for the six months. Uh, she was, uh, you know, three months, um, bed hospital bed rest, three months in the NICU, uh, spending time with the kids. So we're very lucky we had full salary during that uh, six months. Um, but uh, that kind of shook her. And she said, you need to get more life insurance. And so I came to my uh, work and they gave me a $300,000 term policy, which would basically pay everything off that, that we have left, maybe a little bit more. Um, but it was just very uncomfortable for me at the, at the time. Like, Wait a minute. What What do you mean? You want me to get three hundred thousand? Are you gonna knock me off? What's going on? <laughs> but, <laughs> and I was like, "All right, three kids, a hundred thousand each. All right, I get it. You know." Um, but you know, and the process was a little bit more demanding than I expected. I actually got put, um, they actually hooked me up, and they said, "Well, either you have a, and I know you're athletic. We'll talk about your athletics a bit later." Uh, but uh, they put me up to a monitor and said, "Well, you either have this really serious uh, arrhythmia." or you have athletic heart syndrome. And it was fortunate I have athletic heart syndrome. My heart was just a little bit bigger. I do marathons and half marathons, but they wouldn't let me get the insurance until I went through that whole deal. So there was no joke. Um, so tell me a little bit about life insurance and maybe a story about someone who, again, kind of benefited from the White Coat Investors um, sage advice, but not only that, but putting it on a blog and putting it out in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have a great story for life insurance. I mean, most life insurance stories aren't great. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Fair but uh, I can tell you this, uh, there was a doc murdered not that long ago in all oh the gosh. national newspapers. You know, somebody came in and shot the doc in clinic or whatever. And, uh, and so I got curious and I went back and looked at my email list and sure enough, this is a doc that was on my email list that had been getting emails from me for years, including the financial boot camp series where the second email I send them tells them go buy life insurance and left behind, uh, you know, a, a spouse and, and some children, uh, young children. And so I don't know for sure, but I'm hoping that doc actually took my advice and went and got, you know, term life insurance. The thing about life insurance is it's not as expensive as disability insurance. If you just go buy, you know, a 20 or 30 year level term policy. And most people don't understand how much they need. Most people are underinsured when it comes to life insurance. Uh, those in kind of the financial independence movement understand the, you know, 4% rule and that you need about 25 times ish uh, what you spend each year in order to be financially independent, but they don't put two and two together that in the beginning, you don't have any assets. All you have is life insurance and you have okay. people depending on you. And so the sum total of your assets plus your life insurance benefit needs to be that number. If your spouse, if the plan is for your spouse to never go to work, you know, in the event that you die, you know, an untimely death, 
And, uh, and so that's kind of the idea. And if your number to be financially independent is a million bucks or a million and a half or 2 million or 3 million or whatever, and you're just starting your career, that's how much insurance you need. So that would be two, gosh, you're talking about two and a half million just for a hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. It's a lot of insurance. And that's what I tell docs is they need a seven figure amount. Wow. Um, okay. And, you know, but it, it comes down to what you're spending. But if you're spending $100,000 a year and you don't have any assets and your plan in the event you die is for your spouse or partner to be able to live off that nest egg that's created by that life insurance payout. Yeah, you need two and a half million dollars. That's incredible. And, and a lot of people don't think about that. They're like, do I need 400 or do I need 450? Well, 450 doesn't go very far these days. A lot of people are running around with a $450,000 mortgage. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's, it, you, most people need more than they, than, than they initially think $300,000 sounds like a lot of money until you try to live off of it for 30 years. No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. All right. So let's go on to spending plan. I think, uh, Ramit, who was just on Netflix is, uh, made that word or those two words <laughs> famous. Uh, it's, I'm going to guess it's synonymous with budget, but, um, how do you, how did you, kind of turn the corner on spending plan. Cause I feel like that's the one place where people are like, all right, look, disability insurance and now spending plan budget. It's over. I'm not reading the rest of the book. I'm just done. <laughs> like, you just, you know, you, you just started with a bang. So uh, tell me a little bit about spending plan, but basically you say, you know, what you can invest, invest or you can invest what you don't save. Yeah. I mean, that's the bottom line here, right? I mean, a budget, whatever you want to call it in some ways it's training wheels. Is teaching you to spend less than you earn, preferably much less than you earn. And once you've kind of gotten in that habit, maybe you don't need a strict monthly budget. My mm -hmm. wife and I, we don't really budget. We track our spending. We add up at the end of the month everything we spent. And for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, it's been dramatically less than we made. So do I need a budget? Is it limited me in any way? No, but uh, it helps me to track things. In the beginning, when we were broke, we sure needed that budget, though. You know, we need to know where every single dollar was going. And so the the closer, um, you know, those two numbers are what you make and what you spend, the more likely you need a budget. You know, and people who are spending more than they make really need a budget. Um, but uh, you're right. You can't save what you or you can't invest what you can't save. So yeah. step one is is to get a, get something you can invest in. And everybody wants to talk about investing because it's sexy. Right. But the truth is the the biggest benefit I do for people is in kind of the financial planning side and the financial okay. plans way more useful than investment management. Nobody wants to pay for financial planning though. They all want to pay for investment management. Well, tell me a little bit about that. Cause it seems like you had kind of a chip on your shoulder about a bad experience. And, and I don't know if you ever had one, but it just seems like either you had a bad experience or you just got sick of seeing people pay one and 2% that they maybe didn't even realize they were paying, or maybe they had a 5.75% on an American fund or something like that, where they just bought it and had no idea they were paying that up front. I think that's Ramsey's funds that he goes into. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about kind of like the, the impetus for, uh, we can talk a little bit about the financial advisor, yes or no, but you even have a course uh, about kind of eliminating the financial advisor, <laughs> taking on that role. Well, uh, there's a lot involved in what you just asked. That's about six different questions. Okay. But uh, right. I mean, the, the impetus behind me becoming financially literate was, yeah, I got ripped off. I got ripped off by a whole bunch of different financial professionals. Okay. An appraiser, a realtor, mortgage lender, twice, 
um, you know, an insurance agent, a financial advisor, you name it, you know, recruiter, you name it, I got ripped off by them. And so that's kind of what got me interested in personal finance in, in the first place. Our online course is called Fire Your Financial Advisor. And uh, you can bet my financial advisor <laughs> advertisers did not like that name. We heard a lot of flack about it. But the truth is the first module in the course is how to work with a financial advisor. Okay. Because 80% of docs want and need a financial advisor. And the best service I can give them is to connect them with the good guys in the industry. People okay. giving good advice at a fair price. So if you need an advisor, don't feel bad about it. Just make sure you're paying a fair price and getting good advice. Um, but uh, there's a lot of people in the financial services industry calling themselves financial advisors that are really just salesmen. And even okay. many people who are giving good advice, but just charging way more than the going rate for it because they find people willing to pay it because they don't know what the going rate is for financial advice. Yeah, no, you're right. And is your is your mission still help those who wear the white coat get a fair shake on Wall Street? Is that yeah? We we've got a uh, you know the white coat <laughs> investor mission, of course, has evolved a little bit over time. But okay. uh, if you pull it up on the About Us page, you'll see. Uh, let me just read it here, and uh, I'll tell you what our mission is today. So our mission is to strengthen and support the white coat investor community on the path to financial success by providing engaging, useful, and accurate content and connecting white coat investors with best-in-class financial resources to empower the creation of meaningful personal and professional lives. But yeah, basically, we're helping docs stop doing dumb stuff with their money. Oh, that's the intro to your podcast. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, we've, we've done disability insurance and budgets. Why not student loans? <laughs> so oh, that's man. step four. But, uh, uh, it's I so think- hard to stay current on student loans. Everything keeps changing every month. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I think that again, uh, you know, the the idea of this was just to introduce my tribe to you, uh, to to have them read the book as a foundation, but then to kind of get on the train of getting the emails and the podcasts, and and that's where you kind of keep up to date with things. But um, you have some great milestone to millionaires stories of those victories uh, of people that are are paying off their student loans. But um, just maybe when it comes down to it, what was your favorite story or uh, do you want to give us your story, whatever whatever student loan story you think is uh, the the most interesting? Well, my student loan story isn't very interesting. I wrote a check and paid off my student loans 17 years after I took them out. But it was only <laughs> it was only a five thousand dollars student loan. You know, most of my education was paid for with a contract with the military. So okay, well, good, I, good I owed them four years and did a couple of deployments, and you know, and they paid for med school. That's how I paid for it. I'm not sure anybody's going to do that anymore. To be honest, I think they're having a lot of trouble recruiting because of public service loan forgiveness. Doctors right. are seeing this great other way to pay for medical school. They're like, why would I go get deployed a couple of times to pay for medical school when I can just get it forgiven by staying on as faculty for a few years after I finish residency? So uh, that's really the big kahuna in the student loan world these days is public service loan forgiveness. And one of my favorite stories is the fact that I'd been you know, telling people about this for years and years and years from the time I started blogging. One of my first blog posts was about public service loan forgiveness way back in 2011. Well, the program only came out in 2007. So everyone, no one had heard about it still by 2011 and no one was really participating all that much. So when 2017 rolled around and people are like, well, where's all the people that uh, should be getting public service loan forgiveness? It's been 10 years now. 
And so I was very, you know, persistent that, yes, this is going to work. There's not very many people that started into this in 2007. As the next few years go by, you'll see more and more and more people getting it. And all these naysayers that it wasn't going to work, that the government was going to change the rules. Well, now hundreds of maybe thousands of doctors have received public service loan forgiveness. It really is a program. It really does work. If you follow the rules, which are getting more lenient all the time. Yeah. Um, this is a great way to pay for medical school, to pay for pharmacy school, et cetera. If you have any interest whatsoever in working for an employer that is a nonprofit or government employer. And your emergency med, so did you do three years, four years, five years? Mine's a three-year residency. Okay. So you would have already been done with three years by the time you get out of residency. You just got seven to go, right? Right. Right. And a lot of, a lot of docs do six. Oh yeah. Four right? to go. So th three-year residency, three-year fellowship. They stay on as faculty for four years. Boom. It's That's, gone. You know, 300,000, 400,000. And, and it's like being paid 600,000 because it's all after-tax money, essentially. So it's Fantastic. a huge benefit. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point in the future, the program changes, but I think those who have loans now, you know, it's in their promissory note. So I, I don't think anybody's going to lose out on this benefit, um, even if eventually at some point down the road, decades from now, it becomes means tested or something. Okay. All right. So number five, make more money. So start a <laughs> blog, start a podcast, write a couple of books continue to engage with the white coat community and uh, you have a business, right? <laughs> well, unfortunately that is probably the hardest way to make money. You know, some of us got lucky, but um, the, the truth is though, way too many financial blogs, podcasts, whatever, talk about saving money mm -hmm. and way too few of them talk about, you know, making more money also works pretty well. And in my experience, people dramatically overestimate the difficulty of doubling their income. Doubling, uh, doubling yeah. physician income. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I mean, people look at these, you know, salary surveys and they say, oh, well, the average pharmacist is making $122,000 or whatever, right? Whatever yep. it is. And what they don't realize is there's a huge range around that number. You know, there are some that are making 80 and there are some that are making 180. And what you got to do is figure out who the ones making 180 are and how they're doing it, right? Because that's an average. Half the people are making more. Uh, okay. You know, and that's not even talking about side gigs or starting businesses or opening your own pharmacy or your own mm -hmm. practice or whatever, right? Uh, but I think people should spend some time thinking about this. What can I do to increase my income? And if nothing else, when negotiating for a job, a simple question like, is that the best you can do? Might yeah. be worth five grand a year to you. Why I know, not? Ask I, know, it, you know? I know. I yeah. know. Whereas those of us who tend to go into medicine and pharmacy, we tend to be people pleasers and not hardcore business type negotiators. And um, and I try to in inculcate a little bit more of that into into my readers in that chapter of the book. Okay. And maybe just a, a quick note: you you'd thank your wife for her help with your business. Um, how instrumental was she when it kind of came to your journey, whether it be support, actually working within the business? Do you any of your kids work in the business or is this just um, this is just dad's thing? 
Well, we've got about 15 people working for the business now. Okay. So that's that's one exciting thing about entrepreneurship is creating like real jobs. And, and it's yeah. amazing to me because they look at it. They're like, this is a real job. I get a 401k match. I got health insurance. I work full time. I get a paycheck every month. And I'm like, no, this is just something. I just started typing into the internet a few years ago. This is easy come, easy go money. You know, yeah. I mean, you look at this like it's stable, but it doesn't feel stable at all to me, you know? Um, but, uh, my wife was super instrumental in my career. You know, we decided early on to kind of specialize in our roles. You know, we had a baby when, at the end of my intern year. Oh, geez. And, uh, and so my wife, she was a teacher by profession, decided she was going to stay home and I was going to do the medicine thing. And so she stayed home and raised kids for a while. Um, and, uh, we specialized essentially. She took care of the household. She took care of kids. I did the career thing. And uh, without her doing that, there's no way I would have had time to do as well as I did in medicine, much less have time on the side to start the white coat investor. Now, these days, the kids are all either into, you know, school all day or out of the house already, okay. one out of the house. And she works more in the white coat investor than I do now. Okay. Right. He's our chief product officer. And so, you know, she always had at least an advisory role, even in the very beginning of the white coat investor, but gradually she now is, she's doing more than I do. So <laughs> she's awesome. got a big role. All right. So we've made more money. Now we, well, your doctor home can be your dream home or your doctor home can be your nightmare home. Um, maybe tell me a little bit about what the doctor home is. You use that term quite a bit. Um, pharmacists, maybe a little bit less, uh, because I mean, if you get two of us together, maybe we make about 300 or, you know, two, two seventy five, something like that. Um, but tell me about the, the traps that maybe some of the physicians you've talked to have gotten into with their dream doctor homes. Well, this is a weird thing. I've noticed people coming out of residency or even coming out of medical school, they got this burning desire to buy a home. And I don't know if it's coming from the mortgage industry or the realtor industry or where it's coming from, but people feel like they haven't made it until they own a home. And as a result, they often make some bad financial decisions on what is a really expensive purchase. Um, and the transaction costs in buying a home are about 15% round trip of the value of the home. Right. Buy so, and sell. If it, yeah. so if it's a $500,000 home, you know, we're talking about $75,000 round trip. If it doesn't appreciate by $75,000 while you're in it, you are going to come out behind. Um, and uh, so, so I give a lot of caution, particularly to people early in their careers to not go crazy becoming house poor. You know, okay. make sure you're going to be there for a while. Don't spend too much on it, et cetera. Buy it the right way. Um, you know, we often talk about doctor loans, which are basically an opportunity to avoid private mortgage insurance without putting down 20% because you have right. better use for your money. Maybe right. it's paying off student loans or maxing out retirement accounts or, you know, paying off your credit cards or whatever. And I think those are fine to use. Um, and you can even get them as a pharmacist. There are a few of them that will loan them to you as a pharmacist um, and allow you to save that private mortgage insurance, which is basically just protecting your lender from you defaulting. It doesn't do you any good. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so it's okay to use those, but mostly, you know, it's the realization that a house is a big piece of your financial life, particularly early in your career. And you should be smart about how you buy it. That's what that chapter is all about. All right. Well, we're going to continue uh, next week with part two, uh, where we will cover steps seven through 12. And again, uh, I just totally recommend his podcast and uh, he is just uh, really an altruistic guy who's just trying to make things better uh, for the rest of us. And I think it's phenomenal. But I assure you, if you start to understand money and 
you start looking at residencies in a way that you can get the same experience, but if you are a little bit more mindful of how much working every other weekend really costs you, not just emotionally, but financially, or what it's like, because you know you can go to Mississippi and get a residency for 41,000, or you can go in Arizona and you can get a residency for 75,000 a year. Uh, you might think $34,000 is not a lot of money, but I assure you that it's a very different situation. And if you would look at where they are, uh, you would see that in terms of uh, you know, cost of living, um, you might find yourself in the exact same pay in Midtown <laughs> New York as you would uh, in somewhere like the Midwest. And those dollars do not go the same distance. So uh, we'll have them back next week uh, for part two. Uh, any questions, TonyThePharmacist at gmail.com. This has been the Pharmacy Residency and Money Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You might want to check out our available residency audiobooks at pharmacyresidencypodcast.com forward slash books, or you can get your first book free if you've never been on Audible before. You can work one-on-one with me to get a better residency that will better suit your career, health, and wealth at residency.teachable.com. Feel free to send an invite to Tony PharmD on LinkedIn or email me at TonyThePharmacist at gmail.com. Music was by Policy.